Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week, we are discussing the outlook for the UK economy. I'm David Thorpe, Special Project Editor at FT Advisor. While the reopening of the economy and with schools back and city centres gradually awakening from their slumber, Queen's thoughts can finally turn to the future. But with the unusual nature of the recession has come a recovery of uncertain depth and duration, while asset prices are arguably not giving any strong signal, leaving investors questioning their next step. Joining me today to discuss the topic are Joe Curtis, manager of the City of London Investment Trust, Gerard Lyons, chief economic strategist at NetWealth, and Stephen Snowden, bond fund manager at Artemis. Thank you all for joining me today. Okay, Stephen, we will uh, we'll, we'll start with you. The recession that we've experienced and the recovery have been different in nature to what clients may have lived through in the past. Given this, how sure can we be that asset classes will respond this time as they have done in the past? Uh, I don't think the asset prices, any asset prices have ever um, recovered in the same trajectory uh, twice. Well, one of the um, things that makes managing money and investing uh, as much an art form as a science is that you know we get a different reaction every time you um, put the same ingredients together. So should we expect what we've seen in the past? The answer is, is by definition, uh, no. Um, so what does that mean for what we've got going at the minute? Um, obviously, a very, very deep economic shock, huge amount of support fiscally uh, from monetary policy point of view. So you know what we are already seeing is a much more rapid recovery than you would normally see. So yes, it will be by different, by definition different this time, but it's always different. Thank you. Joe, uh, wearing your, your equity uh, manager's hat, I suppose one of the debates in equity markets is this uh, perennial one about um, the switch from growth type equities to, to value type equities. And that's something that, that people are expecting this time. I know dividends are a big part of, of, how, uh, of how you invest as well, or a big focus. Um, what's the dividend outlook that you're seeing on the ground? How does it differ from previous economic recoveries, if it differs at all? And what are your uh, expectations uh, going forward in, in that regard, given that you speak to these companies on a daily basis? Well, 2020 uh, was the worst period for dividends in my career, spanning some 35 years. And, um, you know, widespread dividend cuts ac- across the UK market and the FTSE 100 dividends declined by some 36%. But actually, this year, we've seen a strong recovery, um, you know, combined with this economic recovery, both in the UK and overseas, as economies reopened. And we've actually just recently had an extremely good uh, dividend season uh, from companies reporting mainly their half-year results for 2021. And in particular, some of the cyclical sectors, I'd highlight the mining sector, where we've had some spectacular special dividends um, and the restoration dividends in areas like the banks, which were stopped. And paying dividends and in other companies have kind of grown their dividends or off the reduced base so it's actually the um, position as we stand now in um, at this point in the year in 2021 is, is a lot better than it was 12 months previously. Thank you. Um, Gerard I know uh, as, a, as an economist you'll be you'll be looking at all of the, the data and crunching all of those numbers and I don't think I'm giving any secrets away to say you've seen one or two other recessions in your time. Um, what, what's the data telling you now, and, and is it is it a, a smooth path 
to uh, economic growth and potentially to higher demand side inflation from from you. Well, there's no doubt that the UK, as well as the global economy, are recovering. But what makes this economic cycle unique and very different, therefore, to the past is not only the fact it's been a pandemic, but also the scale of the recession and the speed of the rebound. And when one looks at asset classes at the moment, in addition to valuations, they're driven by a whole combination of factors. Health, which makes it very different to previous shocks. But in addition to health and valuations, it's the economic data, it's the whole policy environment. And also, as we've seen recently, sort of politics or geopolitics. So while it's very difficult to draw direct comparisons with the past, the global nature of this shock, plus the scale of it, means that comparisons maybe with the 2008 global financial crisis and subsequent Great Recession are justified. And maybe the lesson from that was the importance of policy. Policy then, post-2008, in terms of putting us back from the brink, and in terms of helping influence this type of recovery we saw, not just here in Britain, but globally. That's also a very important lesson for now, because policy, both as has been touched on by Stephen in terms of the scale of the policy and by job in terms of the global nature of what we've seen, it's the combination of monetary and fiscal policy, the accommodative nature of those that has really helped drive markets. So I think we need to actually bear in mind that while health and geopolitical issues could yet cause extreme outcomes, most likely for markets, it will be a focus on how that combination of economic data and policy intertwines. And coming back to your question, David, I think we can be confident about the recovery over the next 12, 18 months. That's bearing in mind that it's still difficult to predict with certainty the direction of the pandemic. But I think the key factor from the past is the importance of policy. And we must avoid premature policy tightening, but at the same time, maybe if we talk about inflation, there will be the need for some scaling back of that very accommodative monetary policy at some stage. Thank you, Jared. And we'll just take that point one, one step further. Do you regard inflation as the biggest threat to UK clients' investment returns in the sort of 18, 12 to 18 months in front of us? Or could there be an, an even bigger danger? Well, I think the further ahead one looks in the UK, the biggest challenge is productivity and economic growth. The scale of economic growth in terms of the UK economy has been on a downward trend since the global financial crisis. Back at the time of the global financial crisis or just before it, most economists were predicting that trend growth in the UK was somewhere around two and a quarter percent. Now, one can't be certain what is the current trend rate of growth in the UK, but I would say economists will probably be centered more around 1.3, 1.4%. And that was even before the pandemic hit. But in the very near term, I think inflation is the biggest challenge. The question with inflation, I would say, is which of the three Ps is it? Does it pass through? Does it persist? Or does it become permanent? Now, the central banks, Bank of England and elsewhere, have said that current inflation is transitory. And in that respect, I would agree with them. I don't think it is permanent. So I would cross that P off the permanent. The question, though, is whether it passes through very quickly or whether it persists. I think there is a danger that inflation does persist. And that's due to a combination of factors. The sort of vaccination rollout has unleashed pent-up demand. But as we are already seeing, there are significant supply bottlenecks in many different sectors of the economy. In addition, 
global transport costs are up and we're now starting to see maybe some creep through of higher wages. Obviously, higher employment, higher wages are to be welcome. But I think what we could see is higher wages in turn allowing companies to push up their margins as well. So over the next 12, 18 months, David, I do think inflation is the big challenge. But the further ahead one projects after that, I don't think inflation pickup is going to become permanent. And I would say the further ahead, it's a growth productivity issue that should be the main focus of attention for policymakers and for the markets. Thank you. Um, Job, uh, when, you're, when you're speaking with the company management, as, as, as I'm sure you do, um, what, what, what sense are you getting from them about are they worried about inflation, what's happening to their input costs? And from the point of view of your fund, obviously you, you, you've mentioned dividend growth is there. Is inflation a threat, I suppose, to, to the, the scale of the dividend growth and whether the dividend growth is actually real or, or nominal uh, in, in the next year or two? Well, I think there are certainly sort of bottom up sort of supply shortages. I mean, the car manufacturers are being hit by shortages of semiconductors. And, um, you know, there are labour shortages and certainly some of the hospitality sector are being affected by, you know, just not being able to find, um, you know, the type of um, workers um, who, who would um, be waiters and waitresses and that type of thing. Uh, so uh, there's just two sort of little examples. Um, so. I mean, obviously, there's a broader question about whether all this monetary growth is is going to, um, uh, you know, lead to, to inflation. Um, and but in terms of the, uh, you know, terms terms of companies and dividend growth, I think you know some companies have pricing power, and they'll be, you know, even if you have an inflationary era, those type of companies are able to kind of grow, continue to grow their profits, whilst other companies are more vulnerable to to inflation. I think that's sort of you know, question in terms of stock selection. If you really think this inflation is going to be a lot worse than the markets assuming at the moment, it's transitory. Um, but if it's actually going to be a lot worse, then, you know, the companies that don't have pricing power will, will be quite undermined by it, I, I would say. Thank you. Stephen, I know that in, in Bondland, in, inflation is, is kind of the, the, great, uh, the great terror that you, all, uh, that you all worry about. But at the moment, how, how are you thinking about it? Is it is it central to your thoughts as you uh, as you construct your your portfolios? Oh, well, David, I think the way you posed that question to me uh, tells you quite a lot about how people philosophically think about inflation. Uh, they connect it very closely to a uh, bond market, uh, and rightly so. But we have to remember it: inflation is a plague on all houses. So, if you own a vintage car and that doesn't go up by 3% every year, then in real terms you've taken a loss, same with the house prices, same with vintage wine, uh, you know, artwork, anything like that. So um, all assets you know, within reason are, are, are taxed by the concept of inflation. But you know, specifically on inflation, I agree with Gerard, I don't believe inflation is going to be persistent. But to my mind, is it the you know, is it the biggest threat that the UK um, economy faces uh, or in, in the short term? Well, it's certainly the, the uncertainty around inflation has probably never been higher, but that's not true. It hasn't been as high as this for a, a very protracted period of time. So, And I do genuinely believe as a bond manager, you need to have higher yields uh, to compensate you for the higher degree of uncertainty about the range of inflation outcomes that are ahead of us. Uh, but I don't consider that to be the, the biggest risk. You know, Clearly, inflation is the definition that is the prices today compared to 12 months ago. We have base effects of beating up commodity prices, various um, tax cuts, etc., um, passing through the system. So you know, you're going from very, very low inflation a year ago to very high inflation now. 
when that all works its way through the system, inflation is going to fall quite dramatically uh, as we go ahead. To my mind, the biggest threat to the UK economy is we still don't know the impact of Brexit. Um, there will be pros and cons to that. Some things will be better, some things will not be. We're seeing shortage of you know, drivers, for example. It's been in the news a lot in the last week. Uh, that's a threat. The aging demographic is a threat. And, you know, the the, the the fiscal policies that we're currently running, as lo- along with the monetary policies we're running, they're clearly unsustainable. You know, ultimately, at some point in the future, we're going to have to live within our means. And to, to my mind, some sort of degree of fiscal balancing has got to be the biggest risk to the UK economy. Thank you. Uh, Joe, we will uh, start with you for the next question, if we if we might. Given the unprecedented nature of, of monetary policy, which which obviously Jared and, and Stephen have, have mentioned, does one need to think differently about risk? And uh, I, I think it's it's fair to say that City of London Investment Trust is, is on many clients' lists as a lower risk product. Um, have you had to think differently about risk as an equity manager because of where monetary policy has been? Well, I think of the risk in sort of two ways. I mean, you can think of it, in a professional way of relative to the benchmark, but I also do think of it in sort of absolute terms, the sort of concept of whether you're going to lose money or not from um, holding different types of shares. So, I mean, this is an unprecedented period for monetary policy, you say, and we, you know, we've never had interest rates that's this low or bond yields this low. So, you know, on the one hand, that's very supportive of valuations of equities. On the other hand, one has to sort of bear in mind what would happen if this would ever reverse, you know, or, or you know, if there's a threat to it reversing. And so, um, you know, these are companies we have to sort of weigh up in, in the portfolio construction and also have to sort of think a bit about whether inflationary, you know, hopefully it, it won't, it will be just transitory, but, you know, it has to be, um, you know, a risk, you know, given the unprecedented nature of the monetary expansion that it, that it actually persists a bit longer than the consensus is expecting. And, you know, that could have an impact on on valuations, um, particularly of what one would call long duration type of growth stocks. Um, so um, I think these are all very difficult questions to give you black and white answers, but certainly it's that, you know, we take in consideration in, in how we select stocks and construct a portfolio. Thank you. Jared. I know you're a, you're a Fulham FC fan, which must make you an optimist by nature. Um, <laughs> Given given that that's the given that that's the case, um, do you look at the uh, the monetary policy in, environment now and and still think it's generally supportive of risk as clients might traditionally understand it, or do we need to think uh, differently about it in in future? David, I've never used this analogy before, but maybe being a Fulham supporter is very apt in terms of answering your question because it's about enjoying the moment, and for the markets, accommodative monetary policy is a very positive for all the markets. I think there are two real challenges with the monetary policy environment we currently have. Low or close to zero policy rates means that markets, I would say maybe across the board, are not pricing properly for risk. But the second challenge with current monetary policy through quantitative easing and asset purchases is that we now have a huge non-commercial buyer playing a vital role in the guilt and has to be said the corporate bond market in the UK and that means that yields no longer reflect true demand and supply. Now it has to be said that while we're talking about the UK now this is a global issue and therefore when one looks at the risks they're not specific to UK markets these are global collective risks but it is a big challenge 
And Job talked about unprecedented monetary policy. One could also, in addition, I agree with that, is also unconventional and unlimited, which means that the exit strategy becomes really vital for the markets. Now, one could say if inflation is picking up, then there's a case for an immediate, gradual and predictable tightening of monetary policy. Perhaps we've seen from the Jackson Hole meeting in the States, there's a desire not to shock the markets. And I think the same is true here in the UK with the Bank of England. But whether it's a case of tightening or tapering, I think there is a case for tapering and to withdraw not just the Bank of England from its acquisitions in the gilt market, but other central banks as well. It is a big challenge. And managing that exit strategy is not only important in terms of the markets, it's also vital in terms of how it impacts the economy as well. Thank you. Stephen, if Jared's a, a natural optimist, you're a bond guy. I think that makes you contractually obliged to be a pessimist. Um, Jared touched on the uh, monetary policy's impact on, on bond prices. As an active bond manager, what does that you know mean for you? How can you price the, the risk of a... Uh, risk of a particular bond when you have an non-economic buyer over there uh, behaving as they do and having a ripple effect to all parts of the market? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to wrap up a couple of thoughts very briefly. I mean, there is a school of thought out there that feels that um, quantitative easing uh, has caused bond yields to be higher, not lower. Uh, the simple reasons being, obviously, if it hadn't been for quantitative easing, uh, particularly in 2009 or perhaps recently, uh, the economy could be in a much worse situation, which would drive bond yields lower uh, in the core markets. So philosophically, that you know you can debate all day long, but I do agree with what what uh, Gerard and, and, and Job have said that um, there's you know a price insensitive buyer out there which has been supportive of bond markets. But you know this this second point usually provokes quite a, um, a reaction from equity managers, and that is that if you're worried about bond prices falling. You should be terrified about equity prices falling because, you know, as Job rightly said, you know, what's the definition of an equity? You know, and, and he talked about, you know, sort of like sort of high growth or perhaps tech names. So the high growth names or tech names don't pay a dividend. Um, and by definition, those are the longest duration assets in the markets, much longer than long the other 30 year gilts. So if you get a shock to the bond market, which is, of course, always possible then, regrettably, as we've seen in 2013, the equity market usually has a, a more violent downward reaction um, to that. So in terms of, back to the original point about risk, you know, risk has to be elevated because, you know, back to the Fulham analogy, enjoying the moment, we are all enjoying the moment of monetary policy, but tapering, you know, when that exactly starts with QE, who knows exactly, but it's coming. Uh, and that's going to be a challenge for all markets, be that bond markets or equity markets. Um, you know, then they have to think, what's the scale of the risk of inflation? I would say that if you go back to pre-pandemic, and if you look at the trajectory of inflation, it was low. Uh, and you know, increased automation, increased online sales, aging demographics, none of these trends have went away, uh, which I think are all very deflationary. And well, the Western world is not a template of Japan, I think Japan does give us some interesting things to think about uh, with all those sort of demographic uh, problems that they've had and the impact that's had on inflation. So, cut a long story short, if you're concerned about bonds, and I understand where people are, I think you should also be very concerned about equities. 
Thank you. Jared, um, how central to clients' thoughts should the direction of sterling be uh, in future? Should they perhaps be preparing for, for sterling to be um, materially lower uh, from here? Um, perhaps uh, the val valuation of, of sterling has been helped by the UK's uh, vaccine rollout, etc. But as the rest of the world catches up, do we see sterling take a take a haircut? And how, how important is that for clients? Is it something that advisors should even bear in mind or give consideration to? Well, it is important. It's important for many respects, not just in terms of individuals' own asset allocation, but sterling clearly has a big impact on the economy and also on policy as well. I don't think sterling will be materially weaker. I, I, I actually think sterling looks oversold at the moment. The challenge is one that Stephen touched on earlier when he talked about Brexit. Um, I think the risk premium attached to UK assets is too high. And therefore, UK assets, it, in my view, can be argued are relatively cheap compared to other international assets or Western assets. And I think that's also reflected in Sterling's performance. I think what we need to see is clarity about policy. And there is greater clarity now than there was. but. Uh, the COVID pandemic clearly has diverted the tension onto addressing the pandemic. And also, I would say that we need to see a sort of pro-growth economic strategy um, that's predicated, I would say, on monetary and financial policy, keeping monetary and financial stability in check, on a credible fiscal policy that reduces debt to GDP. But very importantly, is about unleashing the supply side of the economy, or the eye, so to speak, greater investment, because we've invested too little over a prolonged period of time in the UK, higher innovation, um, increased infrastructure spending, and also getting the incentives right. I think if one takes a longer term outlook for the UK, 20, 25 years, there's many reasons to think that the UK economy could start to challenge Germany as the biggest economy in Western Europe. But that requires a phenomenal shift upwards in terms of productivity and growth. And maybe it's sufficiently far away not to focus attention on it just yet. So I do think sterling is oversold. But coming back to maybe the first point of your question, should investors take it seriously? Yes. Even if one was optimistic about the UK, naturally some people might be more cautious than I am. Um, even if you're optimistic, there is a strong case to want to have a greater global holding in your asset portfolio because the center of global growth, I would argue, over the next uh, quarter of a century will be the Indo-Pacific from India in the West to America in the East. It's not really Western Europe. And therefore, um, how sterling impacts your investment plans is a key factor. So I think sterling should be stronger. I don't anticipate it strengthening aggressively anytime soon, however, uh, because most economies, including the UK, are emerging from this crisis in a similar way. But I think further ahead, I would hope and expect it to be stronger than it currently is now. Thank you. And um, Job, as, a, as an equity income investor, um... Obviously, there are many ways in which uh, some of your holdings benefit if, if sterling's lower because they generate the greater majority of their cash flows overseas. And when they bring that cash flow back, the value of that in sterling rises. Um, how are you positioned now? Or is sterling something that you position around? Or are all of those effects I've just described sort of incidental to, to what you do? Yeah, I think currencies are very difficult to predict. And, um, you know, the... Some people say it's a race to the bottom. You can see that, you know, people can make a bare case for sterling, but you can make a bare case for the US dollar or the euro as well. So, I mean, I tend to feel that currencies kind of wash through to an extent, particularly for the multinational companies who, 
you know, are manufacturing across the globe. And, um, you know, it's, it's more important really for companies manufacturing out of the UK and um, selling into overseas markets. But if they've, you know, that then does hit them directly, but if they've got a strong product with, you know, good technology, they've got an, an edge, then, then they will survive that. And the Germans have, over the years, you know, before the euro showed us, you know, that, you know, the strengthening Deutschmark didn't prevent their companies prospering in export markets. So, you know, it is an important factor for sure, but I, I wouldn't let it sort of dominate my um, stock selection. Thank you. Stephen, um, from the bond market, do you care about uh, sterling? Is it something that's in your calculations? Um, obviously, um, it, it can, again, have the same impact on, on yield of a translation effect as it does for equities. But does it, does it matter? Is it that important? Uh, yeah, sure. It is important because if you if you if you run with the hypothesis that uh, you know you could be a big fall in the value of sterling, then you would be importing inflation, and that would have a negative you know impact on I would say GDP in the UK because uh, you know we import a lot. Um, but look, I completely agree with what uh, both Job and Gerard said, and just to pick up on, on Gerard's point. You know, sterling's already had its crash, and that was the result of the of the Brexit referendum. Now the markets weren't expecting it. Sterling fell aggressively. I agree. I think sterling is already cheap, so the, the crash has already has already happened. And just to elaborate on a point that um, Job made, I, I think as you know, we live in our own domestic society. It's very easy to point fingers that this is not good and that's not good, but you know. There's problems with the U.S. Massive budget deficit, massive. You know, there's huge structural economic challenges in areas of Europe, and at its very core, sterling is just the price of sterling versus another, you know, another foreign currency. So it's it's not an isolation. You know, it, you know, sterling ha- sterling's to fall. Something bad has to happen in the U.K. and perhaps something good has to happen abroad. That's not necessarily a given. So I think. To bring reference it back to risk, I think the risk of a, of a fall in the value of sterling is low. Thank you. Okay, and then um, Stephen, we will uh, we'll, we'll start with you for the for the final question. Um, to what extent in the future do you anticipate uh, the returns in in your market increasingly coming from well from companies or from securities uh, of companies that are not listed on on public markets? There does seem to be this trend of particularly technology businesses, uh, waiting longer to float. Is that something that impacts on bonds? Is that something what you see as a future source of return? Whether you are a private investor or a institution with capital ratios to be reported, you need to have a reference point or a price um, for to be able to value yourself. So will listed bonds and listed equities continue to be the dominant part of people's portfolio, individuals' portfolios and um, pension schemes and corporations? Of course, because it has to be. It, does that mean that, I mean, of course, there's a place for um, private or unlisted investments, um, but we have to bear in mind that, um, by definition, uh, you don't have your access to money. So for as long as people want to have access to their money or being able to value the value their wealth, and then we're going to continue to heavily rely on on, on listed markets. It's fun, some, funny enough, I, I think sometimes, what happens if we turn our bonds and equities and only value them at the end of every quarter and we cancel out all the volatility in between time? And hey, presto, we've created something akin to a, a private uh, securities a product and we can charge more fees. So 
Um, to my mind, listed markets has and will continue to dominate uh, investors' portfolios of all types. Thank you. Job, in the context of uh, equity markets, is this something that are, are you starting to notice more and more uh, things that you'd like to invest in but they've not come to, to market yet? Or um, is it something where, where you just feel as an income investor, uh, public markets are, are, are the place to, to be? We've seen a lot of takeover bids in recent months from private equity firms for UK listed companies. And I think under pins what Jared was saying earlier, the undervaluation of, of UK assets. And, you know, certainly in Sid Lund's portfolio, we hold Morrison's, which is now being fought over by two private equity firms, and it's at a 60% premium to its previously prevailing share price. So I think that is certainly a feature. Um, I would agree with Stephen. I think that, you know, the public markets will remain the main markets. And, you know, but it, where you get undervaluation, um, you know, the private equity people have seen an opportunity and and they've come in, and I think that's just sort of how markets work, and um, it's it's really quite healthy. And and you know, it's in my opinion, it's highlighting the under, undervaluation of, of the UK at the moment. Thank you, Jared. Um, is this is this something that uh, that you've uh, that you've noticed, uh, and is it something that you that you think is something that clients will will need to think about in future? How how to get exposure to these um to these unquoted uh, assets, whether they're held, as Job mentioned, via private equity or whether they're just startups that don't IPO uh, for a very long time? Well, certainly it's something that investors need to take seriously. What I find interesting is that this debate is already very alive in the UK. And I would say it's been alive for a couple of years now. Indeed, I wrote an op-ed piece in the FT a couple of years ago about dual listings. That was linked to the whole Unilever issue. But it was about the potential flexibility that could be shown by the FTSE Russell Group that runs the UK indices. And what I find encouraging this year with the Hills Review that we've seen and other debates around this is that people recognise this is a potential big issue in the future. And therefore, about the focus from Hills was very much about making the listings regime in the UK attractive to growth companies and to making changes uh, that encourages more companies to go from the private to the public. And the fact that this is now such a lively debate gives me encouragement that we will see more and more focus on the public listing side in the future. Of course, what we need at the end of the day is sort of open dynamic capital markets. For some companies, they would naturally prefer to remain private. But I think as investors and savers look to put their money to work, they're looking for openness and transparency which, as, as my two colleagues have touched on, sort of favours the public listed market in many respects. Thank you for that, uh, Gerard, and thank you to Stephen Snowden, Bond Fund Manager at Artemis, Job Curtis, City of London Investment Trust Manager, and Gerard Lyons, Chief Economic Strategist at NetWealth, uh, for being part of the FT Advisor podcast today. And thank you all for listening. Please tune in next time for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast, and have a good day. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.